2: now
4: My guest, G. Edward Griffin, and I will be back in just a moment. So sit back, relax, and grab your popcorn. We'll be right back after this. All right. Welcome back to the program, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. And please join me in welcoming our guest for this evening, Mr. G. Edward Griffin. Ed, thank you so much for being here.
5: Well, thank you, Zach, for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Excellent.
4: And uh, I would just like to give the audience first an introduction To you, I think it's uh, unlikely that they're not going to know who you are. But you are a a storied author. You're a producer of uh, many films and 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 projects on video. Uh, And uh, I would like to know first of all, how did you begin this journey, uh, researching these topics, uh, exposing uh, the uh, the communist uh, overtaking of America, uh, getting people to know the truth about what's happening behind the scenes.
5: Well, Zach, that's uh, probably going to be a very disappointing answer <laughs> and a boring one. <laughs> because it's, it's nothing dramatic about it. You know, it, nothing came along. It wasn't like a Groucho Marx show where the duck comes down and the bell goes off. And, oh, I'm on the journey. No, I think it's like most people's lives. We wind up ending up not where we started off to go. Mm-hmm. It was never our original goal. Little changes here and there that we go off 30 degrees, and then back, and then 20 degrees the other way, and all of a sudden, we're going 90 degrees, and our career unfolds before us, so we think, how in the heck did we get here? That's kind of what it was with me. I was a very typical person, young person coming out of the system. I went to the public schools. I learned what they indoctrinated me with, and I didn't question anything because they were the the teachers and the smart ones, and I read their books, and so I was totally programmed into a materialistic world without much understanding of real, really how the world works. Slogans, uh, I was raised on slogans, you know. America is a place of home of the brave and the land of the free. Good slogan, and it, I think it used to be that way, and there was mm-hmm. plenty of evidence that that was correct, but the evidence came pretty much from history. The current evidence was that Everything was going to pot, even though we were living very well and a lot of money around and all that sort of thing. So I was kind of a materialistic guy and uh, never thought about anything much outside of myself. And then I decided it was time to get married. That's what you do when you're when you know you reach twenty one. You got to get married and have kids and the family. So uh, I looked around. I wanted to find the prettiest girl on campus I could, and I found her. And of course, she married me, and uh, so that was according to Playbook, and then uh, that's how it was going. I wound up in Los Angeles. Uh, By the way, I was uh, born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, in that general area. Wound up in Los Angeles because, uh, well, I I decided I I wanted to make a big career in Hollywood. Well, that didn't work because there were a lot of people there in Hollywood with much more talent than mine. Uh, I had worked in a television station as an assistant uh, director, which means I was a floor manager at pulling cables and throwing cues and that kind of thing. And uh, then I'd worked my way through the University of Michigan, making money there as a radio announcer in the local uh, radio station, WUOM. And then I went to Los Angeles to, to splash in Hollywood. Well, I went thud, of course, because there was so much talent there better than mine. And most of these poor kids, like like I was, we're, we all had these stars in our eyes, and all these great talented people were serving table. They were waiting and washing cars, waiting for the big moment, you know. And uh, a lot of them were getting into the drug world, and uh, it was all glitter and fame and fortune. And uh, so I'm glad that I didn't qualify for that because who knows? I might have been pulled into it. But so I, I got a real job and uh, had to raise my family. And so I had to raise, earn some money. I went through all my savings and uh, got a real job with a large insurance company doing, um, you know, uh, mostly analysis and installing health insurance programs for companies that insure the employees and so forth, group insurance policies. And so I was in the corporate world, climbing the ladder, uh, was making a good splash. And I thought, well, I'm going to the top of this uh, corporation because all the, the really big hitters are. Uh, Above me in the corporation, most of them were very old. There was a big gap there for some reason, and I figured in about five or six years, these uh, all these vice presidents would be retiring, and they have to reach down into middle management. And that's I figured, aha, this is I had it all figured out. See, <laughs> and, uh, and then something happened. Now we get to the answer to your question. What was that one thing that got me off of this materialistic? path that i said how am i looking i am in the right neighborhood i've got the right car i've got the right wife i've got the right number of kids i got a, a station wagon and a dog i got everything what else do i need you know i got off of that when i walked into a client's office um and I, my appointment with the president was uh at, i think it was uh, two o'clock and i was there about 1 15. i was pretty early so i had nothing to do but sit in the waiting room And normally you would look around for a magazine, you know, a sports magazine or something about yachts or golfing or something that's supposed to appeal to the masculine mind. And uh, there was nothing there except one little magazine, sort of Reader's Digest size. It was called The Free Man. It was published by the Foundation for Education on uh, -on Irvington-on-Hudson in New York. And it was dedicated to the principles of free enterprise and laissez-faire government. i had never seen such a thing before in my life, not in the grade schools, not on the university level or anything. So I picked it up and started to read it, and I was blown away by the, by the article I read. It was I won't bother going into it, but it was a very simple analogy of how some salesman comes into a little, a little village in a beautiful part of the world where the sun shines and there's no pollution and the water is pure and everybody's happy, the plants grow and everything, but the salesman comes in, and he has to sell them, his, his product was the oil lamp. And uh, Nobody wanted an oil lamp. What well, do they need that for? They go to bed when the sun goes down, they get up when the sun comes up, they till their you know the crops and everything, and, and uh, oh, you got to have this lamp, because then you can work later into the day and into the night, and you can read books, and, and you can educate your children and so forth. Oh, well, that's a good idea. So people started to buy lamps, and of course, the lamp's spewed out black smoke, and everybody had to have a lamp to keep up with their neighbors. First thing you know, the sky was no longer clear anymore. It was filled with smoke. Now they really did need lamps, even in the daytime, to see to, to see through the black smoke. And so they ruined, they ruined their lives by, by accepting a false solution to a problem that didn't exist. And the analogy was made quite well that this is how government works. This is how politicians work. They're the salesmen that, that sell you things that are bad for you and tell you that they're good for you. And if you fall for it, you wind up, but now you do need these political solutions. I thought, well, isn't that interesting? So I, I typed uh, one of those uh, magazines. There was a stack of them, all the same issue. So I figured they were, they were there for me to do that. But I, I actually, I took one and looked around. Did she see me? And I put it in my briefcase. And, uh, <laughs> it was a terrible thing to do, but I did it. And I, I took it home and I devoured it. And, um, and I subscribed to the magazine. I became hooked on this type of literature. And um, I, su- I, I bought all the back issues, even got the bound editions of them. I still have them in my library, bound volumes of these back issues of the Free Man magazine. Well, that was the little step that got me thinking out of the pattern. Now, that wouldn't have done it. That was no such a big deal, except now I'm kind of a, a budding libertarian. I'm mm-hmm. thinking about things from that perspective. And then I run into another pamphlet written by some college professor in the Midwest. I never heard of either him or his college. Uh, but it was a critique of the United Nations, a very strong critique. And, well, I knew that was garbage because I had studied the United Nations in school, and I knew that it was our last best hope for peace. And it was a wonderful organization. It was Good people in New York were concerned about curing diseases among the downtrodden third world countries. And they wanted to educate everybody and bring everybody to the peace table and put an end to war and everything. I knew all of that. But this pamphlet upset me because this professor had some interesting quotes and statistics and some facts that went contrary to that. So that shook my inner brain a little bit. And I went to the library, which I never thought I would do again after I got out of school. Who would want to go to the library? But I went to the library to see if I could confirm some of these things that this professor had said. And uh, I got the books out. I looked at it. I looked up the stats. And uh, by golly, he was right. So that jolted me. And this was the one that got me off the path of thinking, well, maybe the deterioration of society was just one of those cyclical things in nature that happens you know every couple hundred years. Empires grow then they get soft and they fall they mm-hmm. 're conquered by somebody else we 've all read the theory of the you know the the cycle of history well, when I was reading the Freeman. Information only. I got the impression that's what was going on. It was our turn to go through that historical cycle. But then, when I started reading this other stuff, I said, "No, this is this is not historical." These, there are people out there making this happen. There are people out there encouraging this this uh, deterioration of society. They wanted to destroy society so they could build their own version of it. I could see that. So that's when my my uh, crusader genes started to rattle. I didn't know I had one. And for the first time, Zach, I started thinking in terms of things outside my own world, started thinking about the future, thinking about my children and my grandchildren. What about my fellow countrymen? what about everyone in the world? What kind of a world are we going to live in? I didn't know I had an interest in those things until I saw material evidence that those things were under attack. So that's when I really got, uh, crazy. I quit my job. I a great That job. takes a lot of bravery. <clears throat> well, it took a lot of stupidity, my wife thought. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and she, how, how are we going to put food on the table? We have to have an income, you know? I, I remember so clearly, I said, oh, don't worry about it, it'll work out somehow. And, uh, so that's what I did. I quit my job and, uh, I started to, uh, give speeches. I knew this, I studied communications and speech in school, and I was in that field more or less. So I thought, well, at least I could talk on these topics. So I, I booked myself out as a as a young guy who gave speeches on things like the United Nations, for mm-hmm. example. And uh, I was very popular. They, a lot of people wanted me to speak in their, their local communities, the Kiwanis Club and their P- PTA meetings and so forth. Primarily, I think it's because I was a free speaker. I would just—I was call me up. I come and speak, and uh, that during that period, I decided this is not going to work. I can spend the rest of my life going from group to group to group and talking to people in their living rooms and talk to maybe thirty or forty. Or, Big audience would be 60 people Mm -hmm. every night for the rest of my life. I would barely scratch the surface of reaching the real population. I realized that we've got to make this, we've got to use some of the communication technology that's out there. So that's why I decided to try and produce some very low budget documentary films. I'm giving you more than you probably wanted to hear. No, no, this is perfect. It's perfect. I I thought, well, I know how to produce documentary films. I think I studied it and I never really produced one, but I read about it and I participated in pieces of it. So I thought, maybe I can take these topics that I'm giving lectures on and uh, make them into film. So that's when I launched out of the big business ventures. I uh, had a little stack of business cards from people who had attended my lectures. And they liked the lectures, and they gave me their business cards, and they said, you know, if, if I can help you in any way, let me know. So I had all these cards. And I thought, hmm, they want to help. So I sent them all letters and said, well, I want to produce a, a film on this topic or that topic, and I need some money. And I don't want a donation. Well, I want to form a little of a partnership, a venture, and I want you to invest money. We might even make a buck. I didn't think we would, and I told him that. I said, we probably will lose our shirts on this, <laughs> but uh, who knows, we might make some money. And uh, and at least you could write it off as a legitimate tax uh, deduction and uh, do a good job uh, besides. So uh, blow me down. If people came forth, they would send me $1,000. One lady sent me $2,000. It was amazing. And I think our budgets for our films were, I think, about $12,000 or a two-hour documentary, which was mostly me speaking, (laughs) unfortunately. But anyway, uh, that's what we did. We produced some film strips. And finally, oh, by the way, everybody made money on those films a little bit, not much, except for one, and that one broke even. So nobody lost a penny on any of those ventures. So I was very happy about that. That's Uh, great. Okay, so then, so here I am. I'm producing these low-budget films, and I decided that I wanted to produce a film on inflation. Inflation, well, that's an interesting topic. I didn't know too much about it, except that I knew there was something fishy going on there. Why would the dollar have held its value for so many years rock steady? And then all of a sudden, it started losing its purchasing power. And I had read some opinions about it. Somebody said, well, it's the bankers, it's the Federal Reserve... It's the creation of money, not the creation of money. How do you create money? By they throw you in prison. If you create money, and mm-hmm. you're not allowed, you're not the government. So that's where I was, you know, so that this would make an interesting uh, uh, documentary film. So I did some research. I filled up a couple of banker boxes with books and, and reports and magazine articles on every aspect of this. And I never did produce the film because other things came along that were seem more timely and, um, uh, were easier to do. And then, now I'm, I'm moving forward in this narrative and coming to an end, pretty much. Uh, <clears throat> I got a call from a little old lady in Pasadena. And we've all heard about the little old ladies in Pasadena in tennis shoes. They live in those big mansions in Pasadena and they're widows. And they have very expensive cars in their garages which they don't drive. Well, this was one of those. In every in every way, she, she fit that bill. And she had a... Uh, uh, a study group, she called it, that met once a month in her home, and they were looking for a speaker on the topic of taxes. And she heard that I uh, could give some speeches on interesting topics, and would I be able to do that? And I remember saying to the lady, uh, well, I don't know much about taxes, except that they're too high,
6: mm-hmm.
5: and I'm a ginnom. Other than that, what, I, what can I tell you about taxes? And I said, aha, I remember my banker box is full of material i said i could give a talk on the hidden tax and she said hidden tax what's that well you would have to come to my lecture and find out I said, <laughs> <"Right."> <laughs> so uh, of course i was talking about inflation mm-hmm. it is a hidden tax mm-hmm. and uh, so i told her it was about inflation and she said oh that would be wonderful so that okay I did the speech, I've got these banker boxes out, and I opened up them, I went through all the materials, and said, oh my gosh, this was even more uh, more significant than I realized it the first time I went through it. I guess I was still too green at that point to appreciate what I was holding in my hands, and how important it was in other aspects of the this battle for liberty and, and independence. Anyway, so I got really into it by this point, and I, I worked hard to put together a little Uh, quick and dirty speech on it. And at the end of this presentation, there were, again, about 50 or 60 people there. I remember this one gentleman came up and he said, you know, he said, that's pretty interesting. You should put that on the road. Well, that's the worst thing he could have said to me because I thought, wow, I could put this on the road. So what did I do? I put it on the road. I started to promote that uh, I was offering a one-day seminar and I called it a crash course on money. And all of a sudden that caught up a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. Well, everybody wants money, they want to know about money, and they think they know at some level that they don't know anything about money, how it comes into being, how it loses or gains its value, what's good money, what's bad money, uh, who's responsible, who makes the decisions, none of that. So um, I gave this course, a lecture called Crash Course on Money, and it was uh, very successful. We sold out in every case, and um, now we didn't have just 60 people. We'd have like 250 or 300 people uh, in that range. Well, this is a lot better. We're gaining on it. And um, so that's where I was. And until finally, <clears throat> another little old lady, she was not from Pasadena, but she was similar. She, at the end of one of my crash courses, uh, she said, uh, well, Mr. Griffin, and that was funny. Here she's a... Beautiful little old lady, probably in her 80s or late 70s. And she's calling me Mr. Griffin, you know. I think I'm probably about 30 years old or 32 years old like this. She Mr. Griffin, she says, um, I, I need advice. She says, you know, I, I'm a widow. And we don't have a lot of money. I, I have the insurance from our policy. And it's invested in uh, in a couple of small apartments. And I'm in debt. To do that, but I'm making a little bit of cash flow on it. She said, "What do you recommend? Should I sell that and get out of debt? Should I go into gold and silver? What should I do? Should I? Um, why, how do I protect myself from this continuing inflation? What is a good investment today?" And I looked at her, and I, it was like she had stabbed me in the heart because she exposed, with that question, she exposed the fact that I was a fraud because I had no idea how to answer her question. I was so wrapped up in the banking mechanism and the inflation mechanism, I couldn't answer her question. In fact, I was thinking about some of those things myself. How oh, should I do it? Mm-hmm. And I told her something. I, she was satisfied. and uh, But that's when I stopped giving those lectures, and I enrolled in the college for, for for financial planning in Chicago. It's a home course. But it's similar to a course that people take to get their seat, uh, their, um, cpa designation you know Mm -hmm. and this one offered a a recognized designation as a certified financial planner c um cfp designation and i did that not because i wanted to become a financial planner but because i wanted to learn about the real world of markets and investments and uh, so i went through that i got my designation i never used it but i have got it on the wall someplace on some (laughs) other wall and uh That's when I realized what I had hold of, because I realized that just about everything that was in that course was built on a foundation of lies. And there's no way, no way in the world that if that's all I knew about money is what I learned in the course, there's no way I could have given good advice to anybody. I would have been setting them up to support the system, Mm -hmm. but they would have all been vulnerable and they would lose their their asset values and everything and they'd be they would lose at the end of the process in most cases so i thought this is terrible somebody's got to do There went my crusader gene again Mm -hmm. somebody's got to take this information which i had accidentally literally accidentally acquired and tell the world about it that's when i decided hmm how do i do that i guess i better write a book so that's how the creature from jekyll island started and now to wrap this all up, and that's pretty much the end of the story. Although it continues in that vein, of course. you see, I'm going from one place to another. I'm winding up in places I never thought I would be there. I'm the last person in the world to write about money and banking. I mean, like what do I know about money and banking? You know, and I'm going to write a book about it, and 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 face some of these college professors that teach courses on it. They're going to cut me to little pieces and spit me out, you know, like little pieces of chewing gum. Never happened, of course, but I was afraid that it would happen. So I'm the last person to do that. But uh, and I, I would never have started down that path, Zach, if I had known then what lay ahead. You know, because there were too many challenges and too many things where I came to a place where I don't, I can't go beyond this. This is beyond me. I've chewed off more than I can swallow. So, but nevertheless, I stuck with it, and I think many people have asked me how long did it take me to do that, and it's a hard question to answer because i was doing other things along the way to keep the proverbial food on the table sure i couldn't just stop everything but i think if i took all the hours days and hours that were spent on that project and put them together it would span a seven-year time period
4: so this roughly takes us to what the uh, early to mid 1960s uh, at this point and um the world has really changed since then you know, at that time, America was entering into Vietnam. Uh, we had this kind of era of prosperity after World War II and then moving into the countercultural revolution. Um, how has the work you've done changed in terms of how society has been receptive to it. Uh, As people moved into that, uh, that countercultural revolution, do you think that they were more receptive to learn uh, about what was happening behind the scenes, uh, like the true machinations of America and the financial markets? Uh, Or do you think that uh, it's become more difficult as a result of what we saw in the hippie movement?
5: Well, that's one of those questions where I think the answer is yes and no. Okay. Um, Because they're both trends, I think, at work, and it's hard to evaluate which is the stronger if if there is any answer to that one. But uh, let me take the part that is easy, which is that I've never changed my interest or my approach to the things I do, except I hope I've learned some lessons along the way, and I'm doing it more efficiently now than I was in the beginning. Other than that, my, um, I guess it's my uh, aptitude or my interest and things like that are are always the same. For some reason, I want to, I don't want to deal with the minutiae at first. I want to get past all the details and say, let's clear that out, see what the foundation is. That's a hard way to describe it, but I'm always looking for the big picture first. And I never knew how important that was. It was instinctive, that's all. And so, uh, many people, if not, I'll say most people are not interested in that kind of an analysis. They don't want to know about, well, it all began back with Adam and Eve, you know. Mm-hmm. They want to know, how, let's start with uh, the last election mm-hmm. and that's all they're interested in. So those people um, are not usually attracted to my kind of work. And uh, that's too bad, I, I regret it, but I I, I say in the comfort of my privacy that, well, they wouldn't do anything about it anyway, because if they don't understand the foundational issues, they're probably going to be on the wrong side. Even right. though their hearts and their instincts are are correct, and they're good people, they're going to be easily fooled. And if, that's, if they're not willing to understand the foundational issues, um, probably we're better off uh, just steering clear of them because they can't help us. We have to help them if we can. So The counterculture thing was kind of a mixture of both of those. I think most of the, as you call the hippie types, were were introspective people. They wanted to know about foundational things. Mm -hmm. But the the media primarily, and other forces outside of the media, they were well-financed by some of the tax-exempt foundations and all that, were making it easy for them to pick up on slogan-oriented Ideas And of course, the new age and the age of Aquarius and everything is supposed to come from the sky or the alignment of the of the planets or something. And and we're all going to be at one with the universe and we'll sing Kumbaya. That was, I believe, deliberately infused into it to act like a magnet and pull a lot of people out of a of a uh, productive action program to do something about the world, yeah. just to get them off the track, so to speak, and onto a siding. So it was very hard, if not impossible, for me to reach the Kumbaya people. And um, by the way, there's still plenty of Kumbaya people out there. Sure. And they, they'd rather, you know, they'd rather go to India and, and study under a guru will tell them that everything is okay if they just learn how to say oh you know, something like that. And it's a very appealing thought. You smoke a little pot, I suppose, it begins to make some sense. So, um, But those are not the people that we're, that we're looking for. So I, I don't even think much about them, except too bad. Maybe the, somehow they'll break out of that pattern. But now for the really serious people, um, that's where it gets tough, because The serious people are more skeptical, and uh, I could talk all day, and they'll listen to me, and I'll say, like I would if I were them, they say, well, that sounds interesting, but I don't believe it. Prove it. Show me. Where's the evidence? I don't see any evidence, because they're all looking at mainstream media and haven't yet come to the realization that mainstream media is a barrier to evidence. Mm -hmm. It's a filter. They don't they don't believe that either so that uh, you start with that handicap because their sources of information are polluted and uh, you can't just say you know you're, you're dumb not because you're stupid but you're dumb because you haven't had facts they don't want to hear that that sounds just criticism but it's it's the truth i mean it, i think except for some accidents of history like walking into that Store and buying that pamphlet, or into the guy's office and picking up the other pamphlet. Except for a few accidents like that, I might be in the same category. I don't know. It's it's quite possible. So the the intellectual, let's call him that, the one that thinks internally a lot, introspective type of person, um, can be um, the hardest person in the world to reach. And also the easiest person in some cases, because they want to know deeper than on the surface. I still run into that all the time. I welcome the the hard-nosed ones, because that's the way they should be. I'd, I'd rather talk to somebody that just says, I don't believe you, man. Mm-hmm. You know Where do you get that information? I love it when I hear that, because I've got the information. <laughs> that's a lot better than the other one that says, well, you can show me the information, but it's probably it's probably not valid, you know, they won't check it out. So now we get to the real question that you ask, is it much different now than then? And uh, yes, it is. It is because there are more people that are jolted by the crises that we're living through into thinking about the future it's causing a lot of crusader genes to start to rattle that didn't rattle before. And the number of people that want to hear what we have to say, not that, they're, not that they necessarily believe it, but they want to hear what, they ha- what we have to say because they know something is wrong,
6: mm-hmm.
5: it, I would say it's tenfold greater than it was back in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Life was too comfortable in those days. Mm-hmm. What are you talking about, man? Is look, we got all the money we need. We got freedom. We can travel anywhere in the world. We can say anything we want to say. And it was true. But They didn't realize that the the system was being plowed up and seeds were being planted all over the place. And they didn't realize that any of that happened until COVID came along and the rain came overnight and watered those seeds. And in the morning when they opened up the window, they looked out and their lawns were filled with mushrooms. All those mayors, all of the governors, all of the health officials, all the news media people around the world, regardless of what country, they were all in unison saying and doing exactly the same things. Those mushrooms came up out of the ground. People said, where did that come from? Now they can see that those seeds were planted there one by one over a long period of time. And that COVID was the signal the warm sun signal. Okay, this is the time to reveal yourself. Mm-hmm. So, because any thinking person can understand that things like that don't happen around the world instantly, all at the same time. Anybody that can see that and thinks about it I can say, "What the heck is going on? Who is behind this?" That's what. That's what we need to. We need to encourage because once you start asking that question, there's only one answer.
4: Uh, so let me say, uh, Ed. You've spoken for years about this uh, growing and gradual communist takeover here in America, and you're absolutely right. COVID seems to have been the signal. Actually, we can go even a couple of years before that. The election of Donald Trump uh, seemed to have activated uh, many people across the media and in politics, and the idea of a socialist United States of America suddenly became, uh, very attractive to a lot of people out there. They, they looked at Donald Trump and people in, you know, the freedom and liberty movement. They called us fascists. Uh, they said that we were the danger to America. We were a danger to democracy itself. And that if only they could stop Donald Trump and uh, get everybody around to their line of thinking, which really was uh, about power and control and uh, censorship, you know, the last several years have really brought a drastic change to America. And I I feel that your work has become more relevant than ever. What has that been like to witness this gradual changing in America and then suddenly uh, a much more drastic change overnight
5: well it's certainly um exhilarating i guess is the best word that i could come up up with at the moment it is exhilarating because prior to covid um there was nothing really happening except gradual improvement well good we got an this this fine young person just woke up and uh And he's going to be on our side and this person over here this teacher realizes oh i'm going to start instructing my students on some of this stuff and those little piecemeal little stuff like back in the day i was describing earlier when i decided that you can't save the world 60 with speaking before 60 people a night you're not going to live anywhere long enough for that and uh, so i realized that the rate at which we were gaining although we were always gaining was too slow And then COVID, of course, changed all that for reasons which we've described. But along with that, COVID not only changed uh, the rate of awakening, which was good, but it also was it signaled the beginning of the mad dash for the finish line, because I think that uh, our opponents recognize that once they came out fully, like they have done now, and they've exposed themselves, they've taken the... The the velvet glove off of the fist, and you can see the the armored fist underneath it. And uh, once they do that, it's going to wake people up. They're not dumb. They they always think ahead. They're like like the military. They have buildings full of strategists. They, well, this is Plan A. This is Plan B. This is Plan C. Now, if this happens, then this will happen, and we have to be prepared for that. So, this is Plan C four. They, they've got strategies prepared for no matter what happens. So when we think, oh boy, this this I'll bet this surprises them, forget it. No, they've got a plan for it all along. Yeah. And you can be sure that they knew that once they removed the, uh, the velvet glove from the iron fist, that they knew there'd be a strong public reaction. They knew there'd be people who would demand a man on a white horse to say the right things, who would be a false leader, for example. Mm. They knew that. They I mean, they didn't know it would be a false leader. They said, let's us provide their leader because they're going to demand one. What do we do? We sit around and wait for them to come up with their own leader? No, we'll provide the leader. So they look for somebody that knows how to how to do the job, wants the job very badly, has no principles of any kind, will do whatever he can to be important and be a leader. And, uh, and, and that's what they do. So we, we have to be careful about... Who we get excited over because just that they give a good speech, what was the rest of their life like? Where did they come from? What's their background? We have to ask those questions. So uh, maybe I wandered into that when I shouldn't have because it raises too many secondary questions. But once you realize you are in the finish, uh, you are in the final game, and there's a mad dash for the finish line, uh, this is unnerving because it means things are going to happen very, very quickly in the days ahead. Now, you can look at that and say, oh my goodness, h- how do I hide, which you can't. The answer to that is you can't. Or you can look at it the way I try to look at it, and do most of the time, and that is that this is great, this is wonderful, we are living in a time where we can make a difference. Mm-hmm. How much better than being, you know, in some middle-aged period where nothing was happening, no, there was no chance of changing the course of history at all, because you're just a Peon, you have to get out there with your plow and do what you're told, and somebody comes out and whips you to death. Um, what do you do under those circumstances? So I'm, I'm grateful that we're living through this time. We're going to see how it all turns out, and we're going to have a chance to make a difference in the future. Uh, whereas most, of, you know, most of the times in history, you don't have that chance. Now, of course, you recognize that there's a tremendous price that probably is going to be paid for that, but that's why we're here. There's the old saying that if it's if it happens, it's supposed to happen. I think you have said that, and uh, that's like the desiderata that the universe is unfolding exactly as it should mm-hmm. because it has to. That's the universe; it's pre pre directed. And so, if that's the case, why should we? Why should we be uh, afraid of it? It's what's supposed to happen, and maybe we're supposed to be here for that period. So that we are supposed to do the courageous thing, the bold thing, and make a difference. That's how I look at it. So you could be depressed by it or you could be exhilarated by it. And I, for one, am quite exhilarated by it.
4: I'm on the exact same page. You know, I mean, I, I believe that uh I, I, like we like we just said, you know, I mean, the world uh, unfolds as exactly as it should. God has a plan. Uh, we were placed here at this time in history for a specific reason. And you can either be part of the solution or you can be part of the problem. Certainly, I'm not looking to put my boot on the back of anybody's neck <laughs> and I'm looking to help people uh, who might find themselves, uh, you know, under such tyranny. Um the tools at our disposal have both uh, both helped and hindered us uh, it's quite obvious to me that social media, uh, mass media, uh, you know, television and screens everywhere you look. Uh, I mean, it's given the uh, you know w- whatever you want to call that element that's trying to control us. So, you know, I often say a global criminal cabal because it encompasses elements of the United States government, the, the global government, and the governments of all of these other nations. But they, they want to enslave us. They want to control us. They want to control the way that we think and the things that we see and the things that we say. Uh, and they've done so in many cases using social media. But then at the same time, we have a tremendous opportunity to use those exact same tools to spread our information and, uh, and our knowledge. You've done a lot over the years uh, specifically on that front and i would consider you to be a, a pioneer of sorts uh because you know as you said all of the 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 work that you've done over the years the films uh the books uh you know every project that you've been a part of uh it's part of this library of knowledge that people can share and uh, and use to wake people up um, you've also got a couple of other projects that you've worked on yourself. I mean, obviously, the Red Pill Expo that uh, that happens every year. Uh, you've got Red Pill University. I'm wondering if you can tell us uh, a little bit about the efforts that you and your organization have done to kind of you know bring that knowledge to the masses.
5: Oh yes, I would be glad to do that because that's where the action is. That's how if we're going to if we're going to serve a constructive, positive purpose. That's how it's, in my view, going to be done is through something tangible, some kind of a movement, some kind of a coalition of like-minded people globally. And so a long time ago, I began to think, well, how do we create that? I mean, we can sit around and read all the books we want and uh, get very wise and know a lot of history and give great speeches and all that. But how do we translate that into actual uh, reform? At the political and social and economic level, well, the answer is easy let 's see how our opponents do it <laughs> they haven't they 've never had any problem converting their ideas into political reform and uh, but we we 've always assumed that because they did it it 's something we should uh, run away from. we should refrain from. But what am I talking about i 'm talking about uh, secret societies like the one created by Cecil Rhodes. Probably not many of your listeners or my followers and supporters, most of them never heard about the Secret Society. In spite of all the books they've read and everything, and they they're quite open minded and they, they don't accept everything, but they challenge and then they say, Oh, this makes sense. Um they'd never heard about the Secret Society created by Cecil Rhodes. The greatest one of all history and it's still in effect. It's still running the show. And um uh I don't I don't want to go into that topic now because we could talk for several hours on that. But um, when Cecil Rhodes created this organization and then built his Rhodes Scholarship around it to recruit people into it, which is what the Rhodes Scholarship is, uh that comes as a surprise to people. Uh he decided that, well, we're not going to give our organization a name. It has no name. And that's the a strategy that they adopted, pretty smart one. He said, if, you, if we have no name, it makes it more difficult for people to talk about us. Hmm. And in fact, the, the few authors that have written about it, like um, Professor Carol Quigley, wrote his, his book uh, on that topic. Um, he, he even he doesn't know what to call it. And he's the world's expert on it. And uh, he calls it the organization or the group. Uh, you know, that's it. So, why do we need to know about that? It's because it's organizations like that that are, are running the world today, and uh, if we want to overcome that, we have to understand how they work, how they're structured. And uh, so Weisop, I mean, uh, 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 Cecil Rhodes admitted in his writings that he had carefully modeled his organization around the structure created by Adam Weisshaupt, who was uh, recognized as the creator of the illuminati mm-hmm. which everybody's heard about they kind of laugh at it it's no laughing matter uh it was formed quite a while ago over a couple hundred years ago in bavaria and it, we know a lot about it because their their notes and private papers were confiscated by bavarian police and they're in their libraries you can go to your library and get a, a photographic reproduction of these notes of adam Weissop. and and he says that in order for us to conquer the world the world has to not know that we've conquered it okay that makes a lot of sense because mm-hmm. if people know they're conquered they're going to fight back but what if they don't know well they don't know who to fight so these people think pretty clearly on these things he said well the way to do that is to what we will call rings within rings and uh, said so for example when we start an organization it'll be one one visionary with a couple of us private assistants or personal friends, and they usually have one, two, or three at the core of these giant movements. And uh, then they create a ring around it, and they give it a name. It might be the initiates or something like that, or the great wise ones. Who knows? They give it any name they want. Mm -hmm. They like to give it mysterious names. And that's usually um, a couple of dozen people. They think they're the whole enchilada. They don't realize that they're dominated by that one, two, or three. Mm -hmm. But it's carefully set up that they are and then they create another ring around it sometimes they call it the round table and um, they're the ones that go into different regions and countries and uh, they may ha- they may have a couple hundred or a thousand people in it a couple of thousand people even. then they create other organizations even bigger like uh the uh, in the united states they created the council on foreign relations which mm-hmm. many people have heard about but they didn't realize it's an outer ring of a secret society created by Cecil Rhodes. And the Council on Foreign Relations has, I think, a little over 4,000 members in it. And it literally runs the the United States government and most of the economy of the United States. Those people are in key positions. And and the ones working in those corporations and those universities and so forth don't know that they're part of this ring that's dominated by an inner ring dominated by yet a smaller ring and so forth. And then finally they go out to the final ring, which is like political parties, Mm -hmm. which involve millions and millions of people. And nobody in the political parties at the membership level has any idea that they're dominated by a ringer, an inner ring and so forth. So we know how they do that. And I remember thinking for the longest time, how can we do that? Because this is what the enemy does. We can't imitate the enemy. And then it dawned on me, well, What's wrong with this strategy? Isn't this the way human nature really works? Yes, it is. That's, these things happen even if you don't have a conspiracy. Take a look at your local community. That's how it naturally forms. are people that influence other groups, and they influence larger groups, starting at the family level or the banking level or university level or something like that. It's a natural formation. The only difference is that they are secret about it, and they have their, their objectives are hidden. They lie about it. We could use the same structure or encourage the same structure as long as we're open about it. This is what we do, and this is why we do it, and we have no secrets. Now, there's nothing wrong with it, ethically or in any way. So I thought, let's give it a try. Now, all of that is background to your question. You see how I do. I like to go to the foundation. Oh, that's, I do too. Yeah, this is what started the whole thing. So how do we emulate that? And so we created an organization called Freedom Force International, mm-hmm. which is like that little group in the center. And it's a small group, but it's people like, like you and me, and we just devote our lives to these issues. We live and sleep and breathe these issues. And uh, we're scholars. We like to think. We have libraries, huge libraries full of books, and we're ready to go. But we can't save the world. We need lots of people out there in addition to us. Who aren't interested in that kind of involvement in a movement like this? They have lives to, to live. They have, uh, you know, they have the things to do, families to support. But they're, they, but they're good people, and they they know something is wrong, and they want to be part of the solution. So we created an a ring around Freedom Force International, and we called it the Red Pill Ring, because that's that popularizes everything that we want to say. It doesn't cheapen it. It doesn't falsify it in any way. Everything that we have to say at the at the uh, pre-enforce level can be restated in terms of illusion versus reality, which is the red pill uh, meme. So we can talk about uh, global government uh, at at some philosophical level, or we can say, do we really control our government, or are we falling into international hands? And and the one is deeper than the other, but they're both the same thing. So the illusion is that the United Nations, for example, is there to bring peace to the world. And the reality is that that's true, but the peace that they're planning to bring is the peace of the cemetery, Mm -hmm. where nobody is alive that resists their power. It's peace in both cases, but it's not the peace of living people. It's the peace of dead people. And uh, that's a little extravagant way of saying it, but that's pretty much what's going on. Maybe hyperbolic, but it's taller. true,
6: though.
5: <laughs> <laughs> it's true, yeah. <laughs> so um, so we can, we can talk about that at the red pill level a lot easier to and reach more people than at the Freedom Force level. So we have the Red Pill University, which is dealing in these issues at that popularized level all the time. And then we have the Red Pill Expo, which is in two events a year which are sponsored by the Red Pill University. So, and then in the future, just to make it clear, reveal everything, in the future we will have another ring, which is, we'll call it, uh, uh, we'll call it the Born Free Ring. It'll be a caucus at first, a caucus within the Republican Party and a caucus within the Democrat Party. And we'll gather all the good people we can within those parties into a born free a caucus and of course it's based on that popular song you know born free free as the wind blows da-da-da, da-da-da, and so forth. it's got some got some oomph to it and it's and it's real it's not it's not phony it's, it's a good slogan because it's real and uh, and then if and when that fails to change the party structure of the Republican group or the Democrat group, then we take our caucus and we leave and we form a new party. And that one will be the one that will be the biggest ring around us. So there's our strategy. And now the question is well, what's this Red Pill Expo all about? Now you see where it fits in this total thing. We're trying to reach out to millions and millions of people who would never be interested in reading all these books that we're talking about, but they know in their heart and their mind, their instinct, that we have a big problem, and it's wrapped up with our liberty and our privacy and our humanity. That's all they need. That's, that's far enough. That's beautiful. Their movements can be built on that, and they're solid movements. They can't be twisted as long as we keep focus on those principles. That's what it's all about.
4: But I, I really like that because, at, you know, at, at the end of the day, these are nonpartisan issues. I mean, the idea of liberty, the idea of freedom. I mean, it's something that we're supposed to be afforded by very nature of the fact that we're alive and, uh, you know, they're enshrined in our Constitution and our Bill of Rights. But they have been politicized and polarized to such a degree by those secret societies that are running the, uh, the levers of power behind the scenes. And in case certain cases, they've been become almost dirty words. You know, the idea that you would be interested in liberty uh, is now somehow an extreme point of view from the uh, the mouthpiece of the mainstream media or uh, from certain elements of uh, of the Democrat Party. Um And so it, I think we we need to be able to come together on these things and realize that If we're going to survive as a society, as a nation, uh, we have to rally around them and uh, and and understand even what they mean. You know, I mean, people are so brainwashed today. Uh, The uh, the the useful idiots of the left, and uh, and even plenty of them on the right people are just spouting those slogans they're uh spouting the talking points that they're being given by the people that uh, that they're following and and by the political leaders uh and then a- as that's happening our rights and our liberties are being chipped away and we're being pitted against each other and i see it not as a a battle of ne- ideologies necessarily between the left and the right i mean this is really uh about you know the elites and the plebs you know, those people that are running the scene are running the machine behind the scenes. Uh, and then us, the regular people who are, are just trying to make our lives every single day. I mean, we, we want to survive. We want to uh, be able to walk in, down the street and, and say what we think and uh, feel, uh, uh, you know, no, no fear of retribution for doing so. Um, so yeah, I, I really like the approach and the way that you described it. I had never thought about it, but you know, the, um, those, secret rings that are running the world. This is something that I'm highly interested in and I think a lot of people wonder about because there are so many secret societies. You know, you, you think about the Illuminati or uh the uh, uh the United Nations. We've got the uh you know, OTO or you know, any number of Club of Rome, you know, the, it goes on, Committee of 300. All of these secret societies and groups are are running different aspects of it. But at the end of the day, who do you really see as the the man behind the curtain. Uh you had mentioned Cecil Rhodes. Do you think that it all all roads lead to roads? <laughs> or is there somebody else behind it uh, that we can point to?
5: Good question. Um, I'll start by saying I don't know because I really don't. And I hate to anybody think that, oh, Griffin thinks this, Griffin thinks that, therefore it must be true. No, I don't know, because, unfortunately, they don't invite me to their meetings. Sure. I guess I don't know their handshake or something. Um, But you can figure out the important things. Let me dig a little deeper, again, as usual, go down to the foundation. You mentioned before that you didn't think it was a question of right versus left. And you are absolutely correct on that, because when you analyze what is the difference between the right and the left, and there is no difference, When when you think about definitions, for example, what's the difference between communism and Nazism? The flag, Mm -hmm. but the principles, the principle of the language of the Germans versus the Russians or something, but no, they cross country lines too. Uh, I discovered that years ago when I was uh, reading some of these old books and I discovered uh, all these words, socialism, communism fascism, Nazism, New Dealism, liberalism, right versus left, Republicans versus Democrats, blah, 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 blah. That's part of that division process that you mentioned where they try and force us to choose sides when, in fact, both sides are controlled by them Mm -hmm. because they know that we demand conflict. We must feel that we've had a battle, that we tried to win, but we just failed because we were beaten. Now, that's why they, they always put up opposition of their own so that people, the general public can be sucked into that feeling that, well, we tried, you know, I'm a Republican, but darn it, we lost. Why? Because of what we call them rhinos now. Mm -hmm. They're, you know, Republicans in name. No, they're not Republicans in name only. They're false leaders that went in there with that as their mission. Don't think that they're good people. They know what they're doing. They're false leaders. We have to choose between them and, um, and the left, and that's what's the difference they're both of they're both collectivists that's the point. The real words that we should be using is collectivism versus individualism and if we stick to those words, there will be very little chance for confusion as to which side a person is on if you understand what those words mean and that's another topic where we spend a lot of time even at our red pill projects uh discussing and analyzing analyzing the difference between individualism and collectivism, because that is the essence of our world conflict today. So who is behind this? Okay, we'll come back to your question. Well, let's follow the breadcrumbs. They're collectivists. Every one of them is a collectivist, because that's the tool by which they, they uh, administer their tyranny on the people, because the people have to accept it. They believe, oh, it's in our own, our own self-interest. It's for the greater good of the greater number. That's the mantra of collectivism. So if people actually believe that, and indeed they do, indeed I did at one time. Well, then who, how can I complain? It's for the greater good of the no, of the greater number, and uh, that's it. That's democracy. We, we don't realize that this is a terrible thought because it's always it's always spoken of as the ideal, and but it's but it's not. I mean, in a lynch mob, there's only one dissenting vote. Right. <laughs> He's at the, end. So He's at the true. end of the rope. So, if you believe in uh, majority rule democracy, well, lynch mobs are just fine. You got to <laughs> think deeper than that. Yeah. <laughs> you got to go deeper than that. Even, are there things that even, even the majority cannot do? How about the majority of everybody but one? If you have the whole world against one person, mm-hmm. is that one person still entitled to a human right, a free speech? Or peaceful assembly, who can't assemble with himself, but any of the other rights? Is he, is he lost, lost his human rights simply because everybody else has gone crazy? Mm-hmm. Well, these are the issues. So once you realize that the real issue is collectivism versus individualism, the center of the power of society, uh, then the, these these things clear up. So now, having said something about collectivism, who are the collectivists that are running this show? Well, this is where it gets a little tricky. Some of them are very visible. And it's easy. You know, the old saying is, follow the money. Who's got the money? And you had the answer to your question. Yeah. Who's got the money? Well, in the United States, that would be the Rockefeller syndicate. It's not just the Rockefellers, but there's a cluster. All the big banks are associated with that. Um, In the rest of the world, it would be the Rothschilds. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, they try and remain in the background, always have. You don't hear much about it in the newspaper. You think all they do is just is raise, uh, prize horses and uh, grapes or something, fine wines. I think they're just social butterflies. No, no, and no. They're very, very powerful people. It's their people that control the price, the exchange price of gold and silver every day. They're deeply involved in the economic mesh of the world and there are people like that in other countries but we start with that list and then there's this other thing which is not even so visible as that and i don't know how to analyze it and that is there's an occult element to this Mm -hmm. and i don't know whether it's the same people that are in that monetary level that are also at the occult level or whether it's two different levels one on top of the other i really don't know to our purposes, it makes no difference.
6: Mm-hmm.
5: It's there, and we know it's real, and uh, we can't ignore it. What we do about it, of course, is another thing. Uh, you can't just say, well, all people who wear their hair in a certain way are occultists, and therefore we should eliminate them. That's, that's not our principle at all. We have to take away their tools of tyranny, and the tools of tyranny have a name. And it's called collectivism. So I always always go back to that level of analysis and say, if we want to solve any of these problems that I've been talking about, we have to to take away the tools of collectivism. That means we've got to re-educate the world. Right now, 9 out of 10 people or 99 out of 100 people would, would absolutely endorse almost every principle of collectivism because they don't understand there is no solution to this problem until we get at least the tipping point of 15% of the population to understand the difference between collectivism and individualism, and then to devote their lives in the defense of collectivism. I mean, I said that in, wrong.
6: Individualism. In of, <laughs>
5: yeah. In the, in the, yeah. Good thing I caught that. Now, in the defense Somebody's of Somebody's going to clip that. Yeah. I'm going to clip it, yeah, you watch and see See, Griffin is a phony I told you that Oh, oh, that's good. Well, I, hey, I want you to—I want you to clip it, man. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. We'll
4: have a good time with it. Uh, all right, you guys. Uh, the phone lines are open, so if you have any questions for uh, G. Edward Griffin, by all means, uh, jump in there. I've dropped the Zoom link into the relevant uh, relevant chats all over, and uh, I've also put the information up on the screen. Let me uh, jump over here to the foxhole, and we'll.
2: Order
1: now. fighterflare.com
4: see if there's any specific questions that the audience has had thus far uh porpoiseful thank you very much for that donation pc tech pro says thank you edward griffin for your vision uh let the arrest oh actually i have to hit pause so that that doesn't jump around on me uh let the arrests begin thank you for the shades donna Libby, thank you for the cookie a boneless chicken says uh best info on foxhole thank you very much well th- thank you very much i appreciate you saying that sean joe thank you for the cookie uh tamar growl thank you for the can sean joe thank you for the cookie one two three skg appreciate that nakaz808 says awesome interview the original morpheus uh yes sir that's the that's the truth uh alicia b111 thank you for that cookie Ponlo Picasso, thank you for the can. Matt 1776 uh bought a diamond tier subscription. Oh hey, guess what guys? You can now buy subscriptions for for your favorite streamers over there on the Foxhole. I really appreciate that. Uh, it's just like when we had subscriptions on DLive and then, you know, even further back on YouTube. Uh, when you purchase the subscription, it will automatically support your favorite streamer every single month. And of course, a portion of that also benefits the platform. And the foxhole is, uh, you know, very close to my heart because these are my friends. They created uh, our own streaming platform so that we don't have to worry about being shut down or uh, having our speech silenced. Uh, So thank you very much, Matt. Uh, Slugtrail says, I hear you need a hammer now to be in secret societies. (laughs) That's a Paul Pelosi joke right there. (laughs) Oh, oh, good Lord. Um, And then also Paulo Picasso says, marked safe from a hammer fight in my underwear. Good God. Uh, you know, one of the uh, the the interesting aspects of you know the uh, the communication system that we have in place now and, and the speed with which information flows, it's almost very difficult for them mm. to be able to control the narrative in the same way they could in the past. You know, if we go back even 20 years, Ed, and <laughs> Paul Pelosi gets caught with a naked gay activist in his living room uh, having a fight with a hammer. I think the police uh, and uh, San Francisco—they would have been able to cover that up, and maybe we never would have known about it. Um, but almost immediately, the 911 call is released. The police are talking about it. Uh, you know, we've got images from helicopters, and you know, it, and everybody knows. You know, I mean, I think there's been rumors about Paul Pelosi for a long time, uh, and you know, his his lifestyle choices are really none of my business. But it's important and, and it's relevant uh in terms of the story they tried to spin around it. They wanted to make this guy, David DePape, appear to be some type of right wing extremist when I think it's uh everything is points to the contrary. <laughs> and you, you really can't get past it. Um so <laughs> Uh, I guess I, I'm wondering about um, the uh, the opportunities that we see here. You know, um, this is, in my opinion, an opportunity to educate people and get them to think about things in in, in a different way. Um, <laughs> do you think that uh, the, uh, the 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 unraveling that we're seeing right now is indicative of uh, our chances to, uh, I guess, take back our country in the near future?
5: Well, excuse me for taking a moment on all these questions, but okay. I think if so many issues come up with these simple questions. Um, this is not a... In my mind, I, I, let me phrase it with that. In my mind, I'm as patriotic as anybody else. But this is not an issue about taking back our country. This is an issue about... Restoring humanity mm-hmm. is bigger than even our own country. Now, I agree we have to start somewhere. We start in our own families, then we go to our communities and so forth. We work up to our nation, then we can worry about the rest of the world. I agree with that totally. Start with where we can have an influence and build. But um, this is not just a question of America, because we're not going to do it in America alone it's got to happen globally or it won't happen at all mm-hmm. that's my view of it because that's that's the it is a global battle right now and um, so how do we and it's not a question of take back either it's a question of how do we build upon our experience because um we don't want to just take it back that's if if we if we got to where we were politically and reverse all of the Legislation, every bit of it, rewind the clock back to, say, uh, 30 years ago or something like that. That's still not where we want to be. Mm-hmm. It's better than where we are today. But it, there'll be some problems that would show up in there, too, that, that uh, we wouldn't want to get rid of. So it's not just to go back to the status quo at some previous time in history. It's, I think the answer is that let's take this opportunity and think about what went wrong and let's rebuild, not from a starting point in the past, but let's move forward to something that's better, that we could <laughs> build back better, if I want to <laughs> borrow a phrase.
4: <laughs> I've gotten caught in that it's one not, before, too. <laughs> yeah.
5: It, it, it's not a bad, I mean, it's a slogan, is it? it? Sounds good. <laughs> but it also is, but it also is good in this case. Yeah. We need to build back. And there's a better way than even. What it was twenty or thirty years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have to remember that our Constitution—it was a wonderful document. I, it's, I think it was the, the most advanced political document in history at the time it was written.
6: Mm-hmm.
5: And um, but it wasn't perfect. We know that, and we can't just say all we have to do is just get back to the Constitution. Well, that would be a good start, but that's not all we have to do because if that's all we did, we would go through the same cycle again, mm-hmm. where the Constitution would be subverted. We've got to figure out how did they subvert the Constitution, and how do we prevent that from happening the next time, even if we did restore it? Well, we they subverted the Constitution because there were some loopholes in it. There were, you know, like um, the General, weref- general wel- Welfare Clause. Mm-hmm. That was a terrible loophole. I mean, everything they want to do that we don't like, they say, well, this is for the general welfare. Trust That's us. right out of the collectivist playbook. This is for the greater good of the greater number. That alone was a huge a huge hole in the hull of the ship, so we've learned since then that those are the those are the kinds of um, loopholes that were put into the system, and issues like slavery, slavery were not addressed directly, and they should have been. but you can't blame the writers of the Constitution for that completely because. They were building a union and they were not going to get agreement of all of the 13 states on these points. If they had not compromised, there would have been no union and we would have been much worse off than we are today. There have been 13 little tyrannies probably fighting against each other and all that sort of thing. So um, I look at it this way, that the U.S. Constitution was a brilliant, magnificent beta model. Now we've had a chance to see How that worked out. Let's go back and patch up the holes and build a better constitution with all retaining all of the excellent principles that it had and a few more. A few more. It doesn't, I don't think it needs many more. Uh, In fact, if I ever finish the book I'm working on, that will be the final chapter in the book is a constitution for the world. What are those few additional clauses that need to be added to a constitution Mm -hmm. and maybe one or two that need to be removed that would make it more ideal and more sturdy against the forces of subversion from within. So I don't think that answers your question. I wish I had a simpler answer, just like like vote Republican or something like that.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, in, in a manner of speaking, I mean, we have to start somewhere. That's the thing. You know, I mean, we are dealing with very complicated issues. I mean, we're talking about generations of, uh, of bad decisions and you know, maybe not if bad for us, calculated for them, uh, that have gotten us to this moment in history. And uh, if we're going to unravel what's taken place and uh, create a more perfect union, get back to uh, the foundations of what America uh, was supposed to be. You know it's going to take time, uh, and you're absolutely right. This is not just about America for me, you know that's where i'm at i'm I'm in Florida, I care about my nation, uh, and uh as a, so goes America, so goes the world. so we've got to take care of ourselves before we can uh, it, it export anything good to the rest of the world um so yeah it, it's it's a difficult issue and uh and uh, you know I, hopefully people are working on it but We've got the midterms uh, on Tuesday. Certainly, I think that there is a a tremendous opportunity with uh, political candidates that are are running right now uh, that maybe otherwise wouldn't have run if things hadn't gotten so off the rails and if uh, the powers that be hadn't worked to subvert what little liberty we have left. So uh, I I think that uh, it takes people of all types. And uh, really, the 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 candidates that we have in this particular election cycle are better than we've had in a long time. Uh, The uh, it's going to take a changing of the guard all across the board. And uh, we have to start at this point uh, and then move forward from here. Um, We've got I I have a question
5: for you on that. Yeah, I agree with everything you're saying on the assumption that the votes will be counted.
4: Well, you know, that's yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's certainly paramount uh, among my fears. Um, You know, and I actually I would like to get your thoughts on this. You know, I I see this midterm election as slightly different from the presidential election. Um, Yes, there will undoubtedly be efforts to cheat uh, and to subvert the the vote of the people. But in this instance, we are talking about many different races across many different states. Uh, in 2020, they needed to steal it in five or six areas. Uh, and it was obvious that they did that through the injection of uh, universal mail-in ballots and absentee votes and controlling of the uh, military overseas ballots. Uh, you know, all of these opportunities for them to get Paper ballots and 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 forge them, or or uh, through the use of the voter rolls and and uh, 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 services like Eric, uh, the institution of the uh, Center for Tech and Civic Life, Mark Zuckerberg, all of the money that they injected, uh, and, and then of course the specter of COVID. You know, it was like a perfect storm of um, uh, ways for them to manage the vote and ensure that in those five or six states they were able to inject enough ballots uh, to steal the presidential election. I I think certainly there were probably a couple of other elections that uh, uh, that that were were manipulated as well. But now we're talking about not just one really important election, but many, many important elections all over the nation. And um, the covid element is not there. Uh, Something like 20 states have uh, uh, have challenged the illegal covid regulations that they put in place in order to steal it in 2020. Um, and I think a lot more people are paying attention at, I think, you know, I, I, specifically the, the, the RNC has, um, trained something like 70,000 plus poll watchers that says nothing about, uh, the number of independent poll watchers that have also decided they're going to be involved this time around. Um, and, uh, and nobody's going to be told that they have to get out of the count rooms. You know, I, I, Uh, Also, you know, for all its faults, the RNC this time around is is uh, uh, planning on having lawyers and and legal challenges ready, whereas they didn't in 2020. That was huge uh, in terms of why things went the way they did. Um, But, you know, for me, I I see all of these things and I think, hey, you know, it's better than 2020. So we have to see what happens. But I mean, what are your thoughts?
5: Well my thoughts are that everything you said is something we need. Yeah. Uh my thoughts also include the fact that our opponent is not just sitting on his hands. Right. He could see everything coming that you're describing. And so my question is what did the opponent do to anticipate uh this and to counter it? I'm sure he has plans. And I don't know whether it's just to replace uh they pick up the ballots at the pick up stations and swap them on the way or what? Are the poll watchers going to have to become truck watchers as well? Things like that. I've heard nobody talk about that kind of thing. Um, And it makes me nervous, that's all. My thought is I'm very nervous on that because it seems like people talked about the stealing of the election in 2020, but nobody has done anything really substantial about it And except that I guess the poll watcher thing is very encouraging but I don't know what the details of that are. It could be just as a token it could be an appearance and not really very effective, which if I were on the other side, that's what I would do. I would allow uh, something to appear effective when it, which in fact, I know that it can be easily overcome. Appearances are more important than actuality in this case. Yeah. So I, again, here's my skepticism coming to the front. I, I don't, don't know. And, uh, If we can't solve the election fraud problem, then we're in really deep, Bandini.
4: Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's it. That's it. I I suppose I look at it with uh, cautious optimism. You know, I and this kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier. You know, uh, I mean, you can... You know, you can you can bemoan the 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 terrible position you're in, or you can get out there and and fight like you know your last uh, dying breath depends upon it because it really does. You know, I mean, we're we're standing on the brink at this point. Um, you know, things are either going to go one way or they're going to go the other. I certainly hope that we are victorious, uh, but you know, regardless of uh, of whether or not we are, I I think that you know this is just. One. This is just one more battle, you know. I mean, like this is a a a, a continuum of events that we're going to see play out, and uh, what happens on Tuesday, I think, will give us an indication of what direction we're moving in. I pray, I pray that it's going yeah. to be in well, the right yeah. direction. And
5: you're doing your part. I mean, assuming yeah. that the mechanism is in place, we still have to have the votes. Yes, we have to have the voters. Yeah. So you you can't ignore any part of this chain. It'll be the weakest link that gives. But uh, I'm glad to see that you uh, uh, are not pessimistic about that because that's encouraging. Excellent. Excellent.
4: All right. We're going to bring in our first caller. And uh, it's actually a really good friend of the program, a, 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 a co-host that I work with on a, another program called Altered State. Look at that. My friend Brad Getz. Uh, Brad, thank you so much for calling and being the first caller. How are you doing tonight? Uh, I am doing
8: great. And thank you for having me on. And Mr. Griffin, I would just like to say it's an honor to to talk to the legend. (laughs) The legend. That's funny. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, Rod. Nice nice to see you. Um, I, I guess if I had one question, first, I would like to say your breakdown on fractional reserve banking is one of the big moments where It blew my mind, and I started to actually get it, the whole system. But one thing I did want to ask you about was kind of pertaining to what we watched in 2020 with the riots. uh, There's a lot of people on the other side who also think they're fighting the establishment, although they keep fighting us for some reason. I don't understand how that's going to work. But to them, they think burning things down and, and wrecking everything is the way to go about it. And I saw a great breakdown one time where you were talking about revolts, and how they pretty much are always doomed to fail and i don't know if you'd ever want to give a little clarifying on that clarity on that for the audience because i thought it was such a great breakdown on why a violent revolt versus actually trying to do what we've been trying to do what you've been trying to do for a lifetime it's just what, what we're doing is so much more uh effective
5: well yeah that's a great topic and uh I love these topics because it allows me to talk about strategies and uh, principles rather than just issues. You know, should we should we do this, or should we do that? But it's how we do these things that relate to the questions that you just asked. Well, yeah, first comes to, to understand the necessity of understanding the difference between a revolution and a revolt. And um, if you look it up in the dictionary... There's some differences of view, but generally they all agree that uh, a revolution is uh, an organized opposition to an existing government to replace it. But the word is organized. It's a, it's uh, made up of people and institutions that are already holders of power within that system. It might be the revolt of a, a royalty class or some political party or or some section within the existing system that now wants to strike for power might be the military for example like a coup d'etat or anyway those things would all come under the heading of of revolutions because they're backed not only by a lot of people but they're backed by people who hold power in the system like the united states revolution those those were not just farmers out there fighting they were all members of a militia and the leaders were all members of their local uh, legislative bodies. They were elected to position. There were courts in existence. There, there were um, rules and regulations. There was ammunition stored and cannons and stored in warehouses and communications and the practices. And this was, these were governments. These were not just the people that they got fed up and, and went out screaming out the door. So revolutions are not guaranteed of success, but they contain the potential for success because they have the potential for matching the power of the existing system. Whereas a revolt is just where, like, a guy sticks his head out the window and he says, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. (laughs) And he gets a lot of his buddies out in the street and they're going around banging pots and pans and some of them carry guns and some of them don't. And they don't know who their leader is. All they know is they're not going to take it anymore. And they're easy to overcome. And in the modern world, uh, totalitarian systems encourage that. Uh, the first time I became aware of that was in the Hungarian Revolution. Uh, some author called it the Ersatz Revolt or Ersatz Revolution. I think it was Revolt. Ersatz in their language meant phony. It was fake. Mm. And uh, they, they pretended to have a, a revolt. And um, the idea was to get everybody out in the open that could identify who their future opponents would be. Yes. And so they wanted to create the illusion of potential success. Ah, and they come out, and, yeah, we're, we're, we've always been against the system, and now, now we're going to overthrow it. And, of course, it was, a, it was a revolt. There was no organization, no funding, no leadership, no plans, no strategy, no idea of who's going to run the show after they win, none of that. So revolts always lose. And we have to keep that in mind when people on our side are talking about, we're going to have a revolution. Mm -hmm. Well, they're not talking about a revolution. They're talking about revolts. So uh, that might be what you're thinking about. Is that the theme that you were talking about?
4: You're you're muted, Brad.
8: That was it? Oh, I, I would say a hundred percent yes, and I could not agree more, man. Uh-huh. I think that's such an important distinction to make. It's so it's, it's so important,
4: important because all the time yes. somebody somebody is uh, inevitably going to pop up in the chat and say, you know, when is this going to be enough? We need to be out in the streets, and I, you know, and it's just it's it's right <laughs> without some type of organization or or leadership structure, it's just going to be a revolt that gets crushed so easily. And uh, and those people that might otherwise be useful in some other way are just going to get removed from the equation.
5: Oh, yeah. They'll be quickly removed. And that's, as I said before, often that's the reason the existing system not only allows a revolt, but actually encourages it. Because mm-hmm. they want to find out who the people are secretly waiting to reveal themselves as opponents. They want to know now. And they'll butcher them all. They'll kill them all.
8: Oh, yeah. yeah. Well. Thank you so much. And yes, I uh, I know what you mean. I, I've actually heard you also break down the pressure from below and the pressure from above to kind of squeeze them out. And, you know, why, why they would support people doing such things who think they're helping, but they're really supported by the very people who are trying to crush them. And just thank you so much uh, for everything you've done. And thank you, Zach, for letting me come on. Absolutely. I really appreciate
5: it. Uh, thank you.
4: Thank you, Brad. I'll talk to you soon. OK. Um, and, uh, you know, I I had uh, I, I had mentioned earlier in the broadcast or maybe it was when we spoke privately that, um, you know, the work you've done, it seems uh, uh, pretty much prophetic at this point. I mean, uh, going back to the interview with Yuri uh, uh, Bezmenov, um, you know, what he described in that interview is, I, I mean, very, very uh, close to what we've seen play out. Uh, here in America, uh, it's quite obvious that the tools that he was talking about have been directly used against us. And uh, in a, in an exacting manner, I mean, to a T, um, <clears throat> when you as you've watched this play out uh, over the years, uh, has there been any element of this global criminal cabal that uh, has been attempting to subvert? america and humanity that has surprised you or have have you seen it and watched it play out and thought you know hey you know this is exactly what i thought was going to happen
5: nothing has surprised me in terms of strategy Mm -hmm. uh, because it's playbook stuff it's works it works every time so why would they change it but what did surprise me is their choice of uh issues Oh, I guess issues is as good. In other words, the, the COVID thing surprised me. And uh, I'm embarrassed by that because it shouldn't have. Uh, everything I needed to see was visible back when HIV was the big scare. Mm-hmm. It was all there. It was a rehearsal, you might say. Uh, even the same people were running the show, right. uh, like like uh, Fauci and so forth. But I didn't see it. I I hadn't really focused on the use of a of a pandemic as the scare issue. You know, anybody that's read my, my book on the Federal Reserve will recall that there's a chapter or a section of a chapter in there on um, a book uh, on the report from Iron Mountain. Mm-hmm. And it was a, a think tank study. That's how it was presented anyway, on, on uh, how to control the population uh, and make them content with their tyranny. Um The idea, they they worded it this way, as I recall, they said, the purpose of this study is to how how to stabilize governments. Okay, well, that sounds pretty good. Well, we want to stabilize. We want a stable government, don't we? Of course. But you read further and read between the lines and suddenly you realize when they call it a stable government, they mean one that cannot be overthrown by an unhappy population. Mm -hmm. No revolutions, thank you. And so the real purpose of the study was how to keep the people uh, content with their state, their, their content with their tyrant. And the answer in general was, well, we scare them to death with things like wars. We always have to have a war. Well, Machiavelli told us that years and years ago, mm-hmm. that the um, best way to keep the prince in power is to keep the people content because they're afraid of being conquered by a foreign enemy. So you've got to have wars and rumors of wars going on all the time in order to keep the people content. So it was the same strategy, but it modernized. And so the purpose of the book was to analyze all the different things that could be used to replace war as the fear force, so that people will be content with, because they're, they fear the, op- the opposite war more than they fear uh, their tyranny. And uh, they, they, so they uh, in a very scholarly manner, they analyzed all the things that could possibly be used to scare people. And they even talked about the possibility of a phony uh, alien invasion. Yes. <laughs> and that would scare the daylights out of people. They, they'd rally behind their government, no matter how tyrannical it is, if they thought it was the only way they could protect themselves from aliens. And they said, well, we're not ready for that yet. We don't have the technology to make that convincing. So they were looking for issues. Now, the reason I'm mentioning this is because they did mention environmental pollution and so forth. They said Mm -hmm. that's a possibility. If we could create the illusion that the world is going to hell through environmental degradation, they said there's enough evidence of that when we, there's a lot of pollution out there but they were they said this is not pollution we're talking about we're talking about the end of civilization
6: mm-hmm.
5: and uh, if we, we could possibly crank that up and if we promote it hard enough maybe people would fear that more than they fear war but they said we don't think so we think war is still the only way to do it now the reason i mentioned that is because at that time i'm really studying this thing and i'm thinking they made a correct decision but now I'm looking back at it and say, why didn't they talk about pandemics? Mm-hmm. If they had written about pandemics, they would have, well, oh, that's even better than war. Because the enemy is something you can't even see. It's a, it's a virus or a bug or something. You can't even see it. Mm-hmm. It's, and it's everywhere, you know. They, they'll need our protection against it. So that, But they didn't see it in that book, and I didn't see it. So the answer to your question is, is the use of a pandemic did surprise me. But once I saw it, I realized, oh, my gosh, it's so such an obvious choice.
4: Well, it's, it's, it's brilliant at, at the end of the day. You brilliant. know, yeah. and here's the thing. Maybe they did consider it. Well, I mean, certainly, you know, you can go back to Event 201. They were were definitely preparing for it. Maybe they did consider it, but they just weren't broadcasting it in the way they had broadcasted things previously. Um, But, yes, absolutely. I think that's a a great answer, and, and I'm right on board with you. Okay, let's bring in our next caller. And, caller, you're on the air. Can we get a name? Yes. Hi, this is Sue. Hi, Sue. Welcome to the program.
9: Hey Zach. Thank you for having me on. Excellent show. Really a great conversation.
4: Appreciate it. What's your question for Mr. Griffin? Yes.
9: Okay. I first want to thank you for all the work you've done. You're just such a legend. I've followed you on issues from the environment and tyranny and the dangers of cellular technology. And my question is... You know, with your amazing wisdom, what do you think the next step is for humanity? What do we do next as far as building building back a new uh, a new world?
5: Well, uh, your question is what do we do? I guess that means what should we do i don't know what we're going to do. That depends on on the reaction of people who are listening to this program and others like it all around the world because we we're not we don't have enough soldiers we don't have enough boots on the ground right now to do anything much except talk about it and complain and try and get organized but when the window finally closes and it's a push comes to shove thing and we if we had enough people in important positions we simply we simply get rid of collectivists we make individualism uh, something that everybody Talks about and understands, and we begin to reshape our state legislatures and our constitutions in such a way that collectivism is diminished further and diminished further. Has to be phased out. You can't just chop it down like a tree because it would probably would fall on you and destroy everything. Uh, But anyway, um, I think the the quick answer to your question is: What do we do if we have the power to do it? Is to rewrite all the constitutions uh, in the world to um, make them constitutional republics, which means that they, are, they will be advocating the principles of individualism, not collectivism. And that's going to take time. So uh, mm-hmm. the hidden part, of your, hidden part of your question is, will we see it in our lifetime, if that's what we all want? Now, the bad right. part is, no, I don't think we're going to see it in our lifetime. But we can lay the foundation for it. And that's uh, it's quite a pleasant thought. When I go to sleep at night, I can often go to bed with a smile on my face, thinking, ah, I just laid another big brick in the foundation today. It's a little higher than it was yesterday. And future generations somewhere down the line is going to discover this brick. And uh, it's it, we're, they're going to live in the in the vision that we are creating.
9: That's a, that's wonderful, and you yeah, know I tell right. my kids all the time because I'm always sharing negative things with them, and I'm tell, I'm you know try to brighten that up a little bit by telling them that this is our opportunity to make the make the world what we want it to be, you know to make it better than it's been in the past because we'll never go back to what we had. No, you know, and if you were to change the Constitution, what would you remove from our current Constitution?
5: Great question. <laughs> well, I was talking briefly about that earlier. I would certainly remove mm-hmm. the the general welfare clause. <laughs> and
6: okay
5: uh, i would it's not so much what that i would remove anything is what would i add to it and i think what i okay. would add to it would be something that would make very clear what is the function of the state that is tolerated and what is not and you'll find those principles in uh, what we call the creed of freedom and um, you know for example i'll just give you one that collectivism is based on the assumption that the group is more important than the individual and that the individual must be sacrificed, if necessary, for the greater good of the greater number. That's what I was taught in school. And I bought into it totally. I thought it sounds good. Greater good of the greater number. That's what democracy is all about. Little did I know at the time that we didn't live in a democracy. And it's a good thing we didn't, although we do now, unfortunately, because Mm -hmm. democracy is the unbridled will of the majority. A republic, the the majority is limited on what it can do if it violates the rights of one individual. Each one single individual can be protected by the state if the Constitution says so. So one individual standing against millions of people is still entitled to his right to free trial, his right to freedom of speech. You know, things that we, whatever is on that list of human rights, one person has it against the greed and the passion of the majority. Otherwise, some demagogue can come along and whip up the mob, and there goes your liberty. So things like that, a couple of points like that need to be added to the Constitution. And um, one thing I would do, I'm glad you asked that question, because I'm kind of working on that problem right now as the last chapter in a book I've been struggling with for quite a while, and it's called A Constitution for the World. And uh, Oh, great. Yeah, and uh, one of the things I I think I want to do is write the Constitution into two uh, columns. There's a notation, annotation column on the left, and, of course, the text column on the right. I think if our founding fathers, when they wrote our Constitution, had done that, So on on the right side, they say, um, you know, we have these different branches of government, you know, legislative, judicial, and executive, blah, blah, blah. And on the left side, they say, we're doing this because we don't trust people in government. We're doing this because governments are magnets to the criminal class. We're doing this to protect the state from being subverted from liars and cheats and thieves. You know, something like that, maybe not quite so bluntly. But uh, tell them why these provisions are put there in the first place. Then, as a kid growing up, when people are asking them to study the Constitution, they're not only getting a lot of words about principles of, like, how many people does it take to to vote in this and, and that and, and what the limitations are, but they learn the why behind it as well. So I think if, if I had a couple of more provisions of the nature of which I'm discussing, written in a more dignified manner, I hope, uh, and then have an annotation column as to why they're in there, we might have one heck of a constitution for the world.
9: Brilliant. I love it. I can't wait to read your book.
5: I can't rate, wait to finish it. <laughs>
4: <laughs> All right, Sue, thank you so much I know, for I've your been call. There. I get it. Thank you very much. All right. Enjoy have your evening. Have a great night. All right. So uh we've got uh, a couple of thank yous. I'll go through those at the end. But uh, my friend Patriot Politics Research is on the line bringing – him into the conversation, and then also uh, someone over on Getter. We'll get into this after the calls, but wants us to discuss Manning Johnson a bit, uh, former Communist Party leader here in the United States who exposed the uh, Communist plan to incite racial division here in America, and looks like it's come to pass. Welcome to the show, Melee. Good to see you, buddy. Uh, just waiting for your audio to connect. Don't have. Uh... Can you see us? Can you see that we're here on the call? Hold on. Let me send him a text message. Mm, no audio. You're live. <laughs> Sometimes when people are on Zoom on their phone, uh, they can't tell that I've let them into the call. Um, let me try this. Uh, OK, well, that's not working. OK. Um, all right. Well, let, let's 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 talk a little bit about Manning Johnson. Um uh, Manning Johnson. Uh, are you? You're, I'm sure. I'm assuming you're familiar with him.
5: Oh yes, uh-huh. yes, yes.
4: Okay. What What can you tell us about him and uh, and 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 what uh, what he what he said in his book years ago?
5: Well, Manning Johnson came to my attention when I was doing his research on the civil rights movement mm-hmm. way, way back in the '60s and '70s, and uh, it turns out that Manning. Johnson was a a black fellow, and he was recruited into the Communist Party, USA. He was sent to Moscow, trained there, and uh, trained as a a real genuine communist revolutionary how to uh, subvert the American government and the American system. And they trained him and sent him back to the United States and put him to work as an organizer. And uh, he did that for a little while. And then finally, he figured it out. He uh, he left the party and wrote a book called "Color, Communism, and Common Sense." Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, in that book, he said, "I was a devout communist. I was dedicated to the cause. I was trained. I was ready to go to bring down America. Until I found out that the comrades didn't give a damn about the black people. It was all just propaganda to use." the black population in America, like cannon fodder is his choice of words, Mm -hmm. to bring down the existing system so that they could build their tyrannical empire upon the rubble of what we destroyed. He said, when I discovered that my purpose was simply to destroy what we have, and then they would give it to me and everybody else, because once we figured it out, we would be very unhappy. He said, I decided it was time for me to leave. So he left, and he wrote this book in which he tells all. And um, it was a very powerful book. By the way, uh, that that book I just discovered is easily downloaded from the Internet. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just search for Manning Johnson, color communism, common sense, and type in the word download. And there are several sources on the Internet that have put his book up in digital form. Yes. It's well worth reading
4: it's it's quite interesting especially in light of what we've seen in the last couple of years with the emergence of uh, BLM Black Lives Matter i mean the the founders of that organization are uh you know admitted socialists and uh they appear to be uh you know uh, putting that plan into action here in modern day but you know whereas you know, at that time it was, it was the Russians that were the uh, proponents of communism. You know, now it's the, the Chinese that are the real ones uh, pushing communism. Uh, but I mean, I've, I've always wondered, you know, do, is, is what we're seeing playing out here, is that an element of the, the current Russian government as well? Uh, or is it, uh, more likely a, a larger uh, global organization, one of those secret societies that we mentioned earlier. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that?
5: Yes, I do. I think the strategies that uh, we're seeing unfold uh, are not really Soviet in nature. They're Leninist in nature. Okay. They come from the writings of uh, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, who wrote about how to come to power. Massive writings on that topic alone and uh what we're seeing now mostly was the brain product of uh, lenin and uh, because he he said now that we got the communist party so we're not marxists anymore now we're communists we're more militant and we are now going to have a communist party and now we become more like a military organization and um, we're not concerned with uh ideology how to convince people that socialism or collectivism is a good thing our goal is how to come to power how do we destroy the existing system mm-hmm. how do we overcome our opponent how do we come to power so all of these strategies are basically leninist in nature and it's got nothing to do with really nothing to do with communism okay uh, it's just how do you come to power and uh, so that's my short answer to it and uh, this the strategies don't change because they work. Mhm. They will never change. They might be bent a little bit to to incorporate some new twist of the modern society like like cryptocurrencies or something I don't know how that would change anything but it might. And but the basic strategies are let me summarize what the basic strategy is. Okay. It's number 1 lie, tell people that you are an anti-communist. That's number 1. Don't let them know that you are promoting communism, preferably. Well, in many cases, they have two branches. They have openly communist, and then the other branch, which is communist, but pretends to be anti-communist, and they fight each other so they can control both groups. The communists and the anti-communists are both the same, but they fight each other. And so then you and I have to choose between which one. Right. Uh, Because if we don't like communism, then what do we like? Well, the other one. If we're not on the left, then we must be on the right. Right. So let's get on the right side. So now we're rightists, now we're fascists and Nazis and so on. So that's part of Leninism. And um, so they lie. And then, and then the other part is uh, uh, you know, how, how they bring down the existing system. They're not trying to solve problems like improve wages or rights or anything. They talk about those things, but their goals are always how to destroy it. The destruction is the goal of all of these street operations, and uh, once you understand that, uh, you just quit saying, "Gee, these people are making mistakes." You know, they're they're losing a lot of uh, a lot of popularity when they do this. Yeah, they know that, of course, yeah. because they got their people on the other side pretending to be opposite to them, who are talking. Well, here's how we solve this problem: we defund the police, or we do, or we have get a new. New person promoted by George Soros in as the uh, as the a assistant uh, the, the district attorney Attorneys. general yep. yeah attorney general and or the district attorney so there's always they create the problem that scares people all the firebombing and the violence and the vulgarity and the destruction in the street and then they have the solution with their other group. This is the pressure from above and from below that somebody mm-hmm. mentioned. Yep. Create the pressure from below to destroy and scare. And their people at the top pretend as though, oh, they're just as concerned as we are. And we have the solution. We'll send money to them. that to mm-hmm. calm them down. <laughs> 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 That's how it works. And they're chewing public goes for it every time. Yep. <laughs>
4: Absolutely. All right. So we've got Mele on with audio now. Good to see you, buddy. How you doing tonight? Pretty good. How you doing, Zach? Excellent. Excellent. So what's your question for uh, Mr. Griffin?
10: Oh, this is, this is so cool. And I saw him live on your channel. I was like, I have to call in Mr. Griffin. Thanks for uh, being a pioneer for all the years and uh, being the guiding light for truth and research for all of us newbies. Um, I've been uh, trying to see whether the business plot that was exposed by general Smedley Butler in 1934 uh, for the attempted coup on president uh, FDR that was thwarted by him coming out and exposing. And then there was Congress saying that there was evidence to suggest that there was a fascist plot to overthrow president uh, FDR. And that just, there was no accountability for that. And then I, I can't help it, but connect it to the current situation with us funding literal Nazis, the old Nazis that the CIA protected post-World War II under the auspices of Cold War intelligence, was, were, were the Nazis ever really defeated? Because it sure seems like, uh, you know, even after President Trump uh, declassified some JFK documents in 2018 that suggested that the FBI and CIA knew that Adolf Hitler was living in Argentina I mean, if it never was really fully held accountable during Nuremberg, uh, it just sure seems like that's evidence what's going on now, especially with our government and the world funding the as of Nazis that were the ones that were protected by the CIA. So I would love to hear your thoughts on that.
4: This, this is something near and dear to my heart, and I've often uh, speculated that the Germans actually won World War II because that Nazi brain trust was just transferred from Germany over here to America in Project Paperclip, and then all of their other contemporaries went over to the, uh, the Russians. I, yeah, please, what are your thoughts?
5: Well, I think this, uh, this confusion be, can be cleared up pretty simply by recalling what we were discussing earlier, that all of these words—Nazi, communist, socialist, revolutionary, right wing, left wing, all that they mean nothing, and that's because those words really don't mean anything. Is that we have this discussion going on? Well, did they bring the Nazis over? Or well, they brought the men who were Nazis over. But what does Nazi mean? We don't know. What it means is they're collectivists. Nazis. The Nazism is merely one one version, or one manifestation of collectivism. Communism, communism is merely another one. We have the deep state in the side, which is another one. There are collectivists around the world that have different labels on them, but they all believe the same. And by the time World War II was finished, our government was loaded with collectivists. And the idea of collectivism was sold to the American people as necessary to put on a successful war so that we could win the battle against Nazism and fascism. Little did we know that we were building Nazism and fascism in our own country in the name of fighting Nazism and fascism. We didn't call it that, but the principles were the same. It's collectivism. So when it came time to bring the Nazis, the former Nazis, now they're they're not Nazis anymore because the war's over, right? The Nazi Party's gone, so they're former Nazis. So we bring the former Nazis over. Um, who's bringing them over? Well, government agencies, so-called intelligence agencies, which were loaded with collectivists. They saw these people as their brothers. They're the, they believe the same thing. We can use these guys on our team. It was like, you know, two basketball teams playing each other. And they represent uh, two teams, but they both play the game, same game. And they, when it comes time to find a, a new member of the team, they say, gee, I, this guy, I remember from another team, he beat the pants off of us. He's a good guy. <laughs> he was on the other team, but we need him on our team now. So that's the same thing. They, they'll take the basketball players from the Nazi team and put them on the American team. And they say, well, they're not Nazi players anymore. Now they're Americans. Um, <laughs> And so the, the short answer, I'll have to say it again, is they believe the same thing. They are the same people under the skin. And whether it's communism or fascism or Nazism, it's all the same. So there was no conflict there at all. It was just a question of keeping the American people from knowing that these guys have all got uh, wardrobes hidden somewhere in a trunk with a swastika on the shoulder. <laughs> That's the only thing that they had to worry about. Werner, Braun, Werner von Braun was a classic example of that. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah. All right. Melee, I'm sorry, buddy. We're so close to the end, and I want to make sure we get the last three callers. So we got to bounce, but excellent question. Thank no you so much. Appreciate it, All right. Talk All right. to you soon, man. Thank you,
10: Mr. Griffin. Yeah, this was you. awesome.
4: Have right. a great night. Bye. All right. Next caller. Please, guys, if you're not on the line yet, don't jump into the call. I'm going to take these three callers, but if anybody else jumps on, we're not going to. Caller, you're on the air. Can we get a name? Make sure you mute that stream. Yeah, this is
11: Val Hall. Sorry, Uh, the stream's still going now. Hi, Zach. Hi.
4: What's your question for Mr. Griffin? Yeah, we've got you. You're live.
11: Well, I just want to say hi to G. Edward Griffin because he's one of my greatest heroes because I gave up my regular life about 20 years ago to fight chemtrails and geoengineering. and G. Edward Griffin being in the movie What in the World Are They Spraying? Oh, yes. Uh, really had an impact on me. And just to tell you, uh, Mr. Griffin, uh, you're one of my absolute greatest heroes. Uh, I, I took a stand and stood up for 20 years with some of the greatest activists in the world and became one of them worldwide. Trying to stop the aerosols from being sprayed, and and you were just instrumental in the fight that I tried to get. And it's funny that you brought up the pandemic and and, and the way that that kind of put a a block in everything because. Somebody that was fighting UN Agenda 21 and the aerosols and the and all this people that I worked with all over the world—all of a sudden we had like a brick wall because there was this new uh, wow—a plant, a, a pandemic of a crazy cold or whatever, but. What I really wanted to say more than that is just wow, uh, so great to even call in and say hi to you. You're one of my greatest heroes. So,
5: oh, well. I, I can't
11: I, I can't hear anything yet because I'm talking, I guess. But
5: I'll, uh, I'll put I'll up my curious. hand and say and say thank you, thank you. I appreciate that so much.
11: And, and the people, uh, like you said, I worked with some of the greatest activists in the world and a lot of them are no longer alive Mm. which is a crazy thing but people that speak the truth and fight for it hard are often eliminated so i just wanted to call and say oh my god i can just even say hi (laughs) to edward g griffin
5: well that's very kind my dear I'm going to I'm going to make a suggestion. What part of the world do you live in? Uh,
11: I'm in California.
5: California. Well, we have a Red Pill Expo coming up at the end of this month. Uh, I mean, not not the end, but the beginning, November 12 and 13 in Salt Lake. You might want to come out there and uh, I'd, I'll shake your hand. I'd love to meet you in person. So, um, all right, um, look us up. I hope
11: uh, that Red Zach Pill- will give me a link to that. Yeah, well, it's I'm actually in welcome.
4: the it's in the description of the video. So I believe it's redpillexpo Expo dot Red org. If I'm not mistaken, yeah, hold on, I got it. Yeah, that's it. Red yeah,
5: redpillexpo Red Pill dot org. Yeah, you'll see all about
11: and, it. Thank you. And it's so funny. I had to wait a long time uh, to even say anything and do stuff around the house. But all I wanted to say is I love you, G. Edler Griffin. You're one of my greatest heroes. Thank you for always standing up for what's right and when when Zach was going to have you on the show, he was like, "I don't want to miss that so
5: uh, well, thank you're you. an
11: amazing man and a brilliant mind, and thank you for standing up for humanity
5: thank you thank you uh,
4: all right thank you for your kind words uh, and I appreciate your calling in and hopefully we'll see you at the expo. I hope so all right. All right. Have a great night. Thank you for your work as well. All right. Uh, next caller. Caller, you're on the air. Can we get a name? Carrie. Carrie, welcome to the program. What's your question for uh, G. Edward Griffin? Two questions.
11: Uh, and i like to talk about the future, and thank you so much, Mr. Griffin. You're, you've been a trailblazer in my time. Your book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, just just bent my mind around, which is exactly what I needed. But my question is... About the future and rewriting the constitution for the world, as you say, on the judiciary end, would you include a provision that once the Supreme Court has ruled on an issue, if a governor enacts a law that goes against what SCOTUS has ruled, that um, that is that law is defunct, and that the governor who signed that goes to jail automatically? Because that'd be great. Like we see with New York doing with the second amendment laws and secondly i want to know your take on what's going on with
3: brazil's
5: election thank you uh let me ask you what is going on with what election i missed that last brazil
3: brazil Brazil.
5: brazil well that i'll start with that one because i don't really know i haven't studied that i don't have enough data on that one but it's certainly it's very impressive that's all i can say but uh i have learned not to uh form an opinion too quickly until i see who the players are and and what they're advocating and so forth but so i'll just start off by saying i don't really have an answer to that one except i'm going to study it but now the other question about if i understand it correctly is uh, if a governor violates um, or uh, rules or issues an edict of some kind contrary to ruling of the supreme court it depends on what the ruling is, I suppose. If the ruling de- was de- dependent on something in the federal constitution itself that the federal government had the authority to determine, then I would, s- I would say that the governor must be free to reject it. Um, I don't know about putting him in prison, but the point is, the really the heavy point here is that I still believe a uh, strict reading of the constitution is that the state's are supreme. They're independent governments. We are United States, but we are still states. And by that, I don't, I don't mean subdivisions of the federal government. I mean they are superior to the federal government. They are the originators of the federal government. So on that basis, uh, the governors can do pretty much anything they want to do, to heck with the Supreme Court of the federal government, unless it's something that they have agreed to abide to. The states have agreed to abide to a certain provision in the federal government. And that's that's where the Constitution comes in, as you know, that almost all of those provisions are restrictions on the federal government. They're, they're directions for what the government can and cannot do. The federal government has very little to do with what the states can do, because they're supreme over the federal government, as in the original concept. So, the short answer to your question is having said something about those two issues, I would be very careful to make sure that uh, the rights of the States and therefore the right of the governor of the States would not be limited by any provision that I might come up with. Good to know. All right. Good to
4: know. Uh, Okay. Thank Thank you so much. Appreciate your call. All right. And final caller of the night, Thumper Rose, uh bringing her in and uh, actually you know i don't know that it's a uh, it's a woman but for some reason it did uh it occurred to me that they were uh and then we've got a couple of thank yous over on uh rumble lunar Hayes said i love you rp i'll catch this vid on replay keep up the great work and i love what you're doing with badlands media too thank you very much don't forget you can catch me on badlands media on mondays and wednesdays and original clag says good evening zach and mr griffin uh big fan sir thank you very much for that thumper you're on the air
12: Hello, I'm 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 almost spellbound. <laughs> my, my grandfather and I used to sit around the table and have discussions, and he had a library at his house of twenty thousand books, and we would go over stuff. and He said, "You know, it's good. I love it that you're such an intelligent girl, but you're a girl <laughs> in the day." <laughs> you know what that meant? I was like. I always felt ashamed that I didn't have a penis and I couldn't go to college. <laughs> I'm sorry.
6: <laughs> oh,
10: well, I grew you...
12: up and went to college. Anyway, <laughs> a lot of this stuff, I hear everybody say, oh, the forefathers were Mason, they were Illuminati and stuff. But if you read their writings, they told us all of this. They told us, we're giving you a constitutional republic if you can keep it. And we're giving you this form of government. And as soon as you blink, all these people in government are going to become wolves and they're going to have you for dinner. So stay awake and stay alert. And mm-hmm. what did we do? We got fat and happy.
4: That's <laughs> true. Yeah.
12: And it's just that, and I'm loving these new, like Mr. Griffin. Coming out and saying, hey, you know, this is what we need to do. And I'm not a revolutionary or a revolter, but I'm a, you know, let's install the rule of law. And I don't really have a question. I'm just, just fanboying. And I was in chat and everybody's like, you should call. And I was like, oh, I don't even know how I have graduated from Zoom, boomer to zoomer.
4: There you go. <laughs> <laughs>
12: Uh, And uh, and it's so good to see you, Mr. Griffin.
5: Uh, Thank you, Thumper. My pleasure. All right. Thumper, I really appreciate your
4: call. Thank you so much. And uh, I'm glad you're enjoying the show. All right. Thank you. All right. Have a great night. Okay, you guys, we're at the end of the broadcast. Let me just give the final thank yous over on the foxhole. Sean Joe said, Mr. Griffin, you have made a difference in moving the human condition forward. God bless you. Uh Tenet Booth just activated a bronze tier subscription. Thank you very much. Homegoy says, great guest. G. Edward was instrumental in my red pill shift. Uh Thank you to Puddin' Hollow for one, two, three, four cookies. Timberjet says, thank you, Zach, for another fine program. I missed the first part because of the Trump rally, which was epic. Yes, uh, at the time that we scheduled this, the Trump rally wasn't scheduled, and uh, I was already <laughs> – Having G. Edward Griffin stay up pretty late for the show, so I didn't want to push it any farther. Uh, Cubanon, thank you for the ship. Low Country Brooklyn says, uh, don't forget, redpillexpo.org. Porpoiseful says, this is one of the best shows yet. Thank you. Uh, Brooklyn also says, follow this amazing individualist on Truth. G. Edward Griffin is on Truth Social. You can find him at G. Edward Griffin, excuse me, G. Edward underscore Griffin, uh, Truth uh, Brooklyn also says, shout out to the Foxhole fam and to the team for what they've done for the community. We are grateful. Woke and Walked says, shout out to Thumper Rose. Brooklyn also says, shout out to three of my favorite Patriot mothers, Thumper Rose, Debbie Roush, and Rain. Love you all. And then 123SKG got a silver subscription. Thank you very much for the support, you guys. Uh, also, real briefly, over on Cash App, uh, Catherine says, uh, great show for tonight, loving the conversation, and hello to uh, this fine gentleman, G. Edward Griffin, and hi to my mom. Uh, Tracy says, much love, always, and great show today. And then Kelly says, I should try to get David Jose on Telegram on my show. He's actually on the list, so uh, bet David Jose will be here before too long, and then Finally, uh over there on uh, Buy Me a Coffee, Kim says, I'm really enjoying following you on Rumble RP. I do miss your shorter news shows, but enjoy your shows on Badlands Media, too. There will be uh, uh more RPNs back on the air of just add so much going on. Uh Mara also says, thank you, Zach. I'm a monthly supporter, but I thought I'd send you some love. Mr. Griffin, I just wanted to say one more time, thank you so much for being here. Uh, and at the conclusion of the broadcast, I always like to ask my guests – what you would most like the audience to take away from our conversation tonight?
5: Most. Hmm. I guess it would be the realization that the answer that we're looking for is within us. I think somebody said it quite well the other day. It sort of shook me. I think he said it this way. He said... The people we have been looking for to save us are us. Absolutely. That's the thought, because there's the the lever that makes it all happen. If we are looking for someone else to do it, think, oh, we're too busy, we don't have enough money, we don't have enough time, I don't have enough knowledge, I I don't like getting busy with politics or anything, then, you know, nothing's going to happen. But it's within all of us to do something. And I think when all of us add our something together, it'll be something great.
4: Amen. All right. Coming up on, you said it was November, uh, was it 11th and 12th or 12th and 13th for the Red Pill Expo? 12th
5: and 13th, yes. In uh, Salt Lake City. Yes, everybody, please take a look at the the Red Pill Expo. You're going to like it. All right, excellent. Thank you once more to uh,
4: everyone for hanging out with us tonight. Thank you again to G. Edward Griffin for uh, taking the time to spend uh, these last few hours with us. And uh, everybody, I'll be off tomorrow because it's Sunday, but I'll be back on Monday. And uh, until that time, good luck and God bless. Did you have something else, Ed?
5: Yeah, my wife just told me I forgot to add .org when I said go to (laughs) Red Pill Expo. She's always correct on that. I always forget it. So if you want to find out the truth about Red Pill Expo and everything else in the world. It's redpillexpo.org. Excellent.
4: And, uh, of course, once more, all of that uh, and a number of other websites for Mr. Griffin are in the description of this video. If you didn't catch the whole thing, you can watch the replay shortly, and the audio podcast will be out later tonight. So, everybody at home, good luck and God bless.